0: This is
1: World Beyond War, a new podcast.
2: Hi, this is Mark, and this is actually the eighth episode of the World Beyond War podcast. And we wanted to begin today by pausing to say a few words about what we're doing with this podcast and why we're excited about it, and also some other things we're doing at World Beyond War. We did create this podcast series earlier this year, in January. And one thing I really like about what we're doing here is that every episode is tackling a different topic, a different attitude, a different approach. Sometimes we're talking about creative topics, sometimes we're talking about educational topics or political topics, and I hope we're keeping it really interesting. I'm always very happy here to be joined by my co-host Greta Zaro. So Greta, how are you doing today?
1: Good. Thanks, Mark. I wanted to give a quick update about one project that we've been working on this summer, which is our fact sheet series. And I'm really excited that we've released seven new fact sheets, um, which talk about the reasons why we're opposing war. And if you go to our website, worldbeyondwar.org, you'll see we have a category of reasons called the whys. Um, And so we have, for example, why war threatens the environment, why war erodes civil liberties, why war impoverishes us, and so we've taken all those whys and we've worked with volunteers to do some really great research and write up fact sheets that are short, they're well footnoted and cited so you can see all the statistics and where we got them from, and they're designed to be printed out and brought to events or handed to your elected officials. So you can go to worldbeyondwar.org education and click on fact sheets to see the full series. Um, but I just wanted to mention that because we've been working on it all summer and just culminated um, and published it.
2: Excellent, thanks. And um, I'd like to mention another thing that um, we recently launched, which is called the Peace Almanac. It's actually a calendar of every day of the year and one peace or anti-war or global awareness related event every day. And I'm really enjoying every, every morning seeing what did happen on this particular day that's um, notable. Each of the entries in the Peace Almanac cover different areas of the world, different times in history. And I think you get a real sense for, the, um, for, for how broad and just how big the anti-war movement and cause have, causes have been. Also, the Peace Almanac is available in a hard copy. You can actually um, purchase it or you can read it online or you can just follow it on Twitter or Facebook where we post it every day.
1: I'm an organizer by trade and the Peace Almanac is a really great organizing tool as well. So it's something that you can use to organize an event around. If you pick a day on the almanac and look at what happened that day, a historical moment in the peace movement or the anti-war movement and you know, organize an event in your community to talk about that issue and kind of link it to the broader anti-war movement and what World Beyond War is doing. So it's a good way to spark ideas for events and campaigns. It's also something that you can use if you're writing a letter to the editor in your local newspaper um, to tie it to that particular day and that event again, and then to, to link it out further to other issues of our current time.
2: True. Great. I think really the most exciting thing that's going on next month, Greta, do you want to talk about that?
1: Yeah, our annual conference, our fourth annual conference, No War 2019 on October five and six in Limerick, Ireland. We're really excited. This is the first time that we're holding the conference in Europe. It is being organized by our Irish chapter and we are hosting it in Limerick near Shannon Airport for a very particular reason and that is to expose US militarism at Shannon Airport. Every year, the US military sends tens of thousands of troops through Shannon Airport on their way to wars in the Middle East. And so although Ireland is supposed to be neutral, quote unquote, in mm-hmm. fact, Ireland is propping up US militarism and propping up wars in far flung places such as Iraq and Afghanistan and Syria, where these troops are flying to. So we're hosting the conference October 5 and 6. And we're concluding the conference with a rally at Shannon airports to peacefully protest the US military's presence there. And I'm excited for all of the hands-on workshops that we're hosting this year, including a musical workshop to talk about how to use music in your activism. So um, we have some cool interactive lineups um, and some really great speakers, over 30 speakers uh, lined up for the conference. So you can learn more about it if you go to our website, worldbeyondwar.org slash nowar2019. I'll be there doing a workshop on divestment mark will be there live streaming everything um, yeah you want to <laughs> talk about anything else related to the conference
2: yeah um i'm just really looking forward to it and i cannot describe it enough how heartening it is for an anti-war activist or for anybody whether or not you call yourself an activist for anybody who's just concerned with this issue and wants to learn more about it to go to a place where you will be surrounded with hundreds of other people who feel the same way that you do and who care as much as you do and who are allowed to talk about it and who who are gathered together to talk about it and to make a difference. This will be my third World Beyond War Conference. I was there last year in Toronto and the year before in Washington, DC. Both of them were just great experiences and I, I recommend that anybody who'd come to this conference or any of our events, um, I don't think you'll be sorry if you go ahead and do it.
1: Absolutely. We are a global organization with membership in 175 countries around the world. And I have to say, it really does help to have that in-person annual meeting, like you said, just to have that human connection. And we see time and time again that, our strongest supporters, our chapter coordinators, our board members, our tech gurus like Mark, um, a lot of them all started out at conferences where we got to connect in person and talk about these issues and then take that to digital organizing.
2: Yep, so true, so true. Okay, so we're about to get started. We have a very unique episode today. We're interviewing three people who are peace educators and we're going to get started. We're just going to have um, a minute of music and here we go.
3: Come, you masters of war You that build the big guns You that build the death planes You that build all the guns You that hide behind walls You that hide behind desks I just want you to know I can see through your masks You that never done nothing But built to destroy You play with my world Like it's your little toy You put a gun in my hand And you hide from my eyes Then you turn and run farther When the fast bullets fly
1: Okay, today's episode is all about a global security system, an alternative to war, which is the title of World Beyond War's book, and the blueprint that guides all of our campaigns. My name is Greta Zaro, and I'm the organizing director of World Beyond War, a global grassroots network advocating for the abolition of war and its replacement with an alternative global security system based on peace, nonviolence, and demilitarization. I'm joined today by my co-host, Mark Elliott-Stein. Hi, Mark. Hi, Greta. And our three panelists today are Tony Jenkins. Tony is the Education Director for World Beyond War. He has 15 years of experience directing and designing peace building and international educational programs and projects, and leadership in the international development of peace studies and peace education. Since 2001, he has served as the Managing Director of the International Institute on Peace Education, and since 2007, as the coordinator for the Global Campaign for Peace Education. Tony is a co-author of World Beyond War's book, A Global Security System, An Alternative to War, and he is the creator of World Beyond War's Study War No More, Study and Action Guide. Tony also develops and administers World Beyond War's War Abolition 101 and 201 online courses. Welcome, Tony.
4: Hi, Greta. Hi, Mark. Good to be here.
1: Our next guest is Patrick Hiller. Patrick is a former member of World Beyond War's coordinating committee. He is a peace scientist who is committed in his personal and professional life to create a world beyond war. He is the executive director of the War Prevention Initiative by the Jubitz Family Foundation, and he teaches conflict resolution at Portland State University. He is actively involved in publishing book chapters, academic articles, and newspaper op-eds. His work is almost exclusively related to the analysis of war and peace and social injustice and advocacy for nonviolent conflict transformation approaches. He talks at conferences and other venues about the evolution of a global peace system and has produced a short documentary with the same name. Patrick is also a co author of World Beyond War's book. Welcome, Patrick.
5: Thank you, and it's good to be with you.
1: And our next guest is Kozue Akibayashi. Kozue is the former international president of the Women's International League for Peace and Freedom and a professor of Graduate School of Global Studies at Doshisha University, Kyoto, Japan, where she teaches feminist peace studies and education. Kozue has conducted action research on the feminist peace movement, Okinawa Women Act Against Military Violence, who has addressed the problem of sexual violence by U.S. soldiers stationed in Okinawa since 1945. She has also been active in other transnational feminist peace movements, including the International Women's Network Against Militarism, which calls for the demilitarization and decolonization of security, and Women Cross DMZ for Peace on the Korean Peninsula. Kozuhe is a contributor to World Beyond War's Study War No More Study in Action Guide, which supports the study of World Beyond War's book. Welcome, Kozuhe.
0: Thank you. Thank you for having me.
1: All right. So our first question is, what does a global security system even mean? I think especially for people who are not familiar with anti-war work, that term can sound very vague and, and complex. So, Tony, we'll start with you. What does a global security system mean to you? And why is the title of World Beyond War's book, A Global Security System? (laughs)
4: <laughs> uh, that's a very important question, and I don't know if I have a simple answer. Um, I like—I uh, personally like complexity, so I'll, I'll do my best to be as short and simple and sweet as I can. Um, so, um, you know, the full title of our book, which you've mentioned a few times, is a global security system: an alternative to war. And and I think it may maybe explaining what I mean by a global security system, I want to emphasize the the latter part of this title a little bit. So I think uh, when we think about and examine our present system of global security, we see this very kind of complex, uh, interdependent, very highly militarized system, uh, a system that's dependent upon pursuing security through force and the threat of force. And often we describe this as the war system, right? And uh, obviously the defects of this um, of, of this war system are pretty well documented. Uh, your listeners will be pretty well aware of it. I um, mean, first and foremost, of course, war kills. Um, we know that, you know, 108 plus million people were killed in wars in the 20th century. Uh, war and the preparation for war, they devastate the environment. They harm the planet. Uh, out of control, military spending diverts resources from, from meeting human needs. So simply put, the system, uh, militarism and the institution of war, it breeds insecurity. Um, the opposite of, of what they purport to do. So for, for me and for World Beyond War, uh, it's important for us to critically examine this present system, uh, but perhaps most important, it's really imperative that we think critically about what we mean by security in general, what makes us secure. Uh, mm-hmm. And one of the things that we, that we argue in our book is that security is better understood as something very different than this militarized notion, right? That security can be understood as you know, freedom from direct violence, from danger, from threat, Uh, To be secure means that we're able to reach our full human potential. Uh, It implies that we have our our basic human needs met, you know, access to food, water, shelter, clothing, healthcare, sanitation, a clean environment. Uh, And it also implies we're able to live with human dignity, right? That we have the assurances that our needs to belong and be in community with others aren't threatened. So that's for us is the essence of human security. Uh, where people are placed above the interests of the of the nation state. So, uh, where where I want to get to in explaining this title is, is what do we replace this war system with? And that's really what uh, this book is all about for us, uh, and for world beyond war. You know, what what new inventions must we design to replace this old system? What more preferable nonviolent alternatives might already exist, which might still be Uh, need to still be imagined Uh, and once we have a kind of a clear vision how do we go about you know making that transition from this old system to a new one Um, and that's what uh, this book *A global security system and alternative war offers. It's essentially our blueprint for ending uh, wars and it's uh, as you mentioned in the introduction a little bit ago um, that this work is based on years of great scientific research by Patrick and others. Um, It's rooted in well-documented evidence, and we put forward an alternative vision of security in which peace is pursued by peaceful means.
1: Thanks, Tony. Um, Patrick and Kozue, as I mentioned in the introduction, both of you have contributed to this book, um, either through writing it, as Patrick did, or Kozue producing a video for the study guide. So what does alternative global security system mean to you both? Um, Let's start with Kozue.
0: Shani explained the complicity of the global security system. My answer, probably to to this question, what does an alternative alternative global security system mean? Maybe rather simple. Uh, we are looking at the um, achievement of uh, everyone's well-being in the global security alternative uh, security system. That's the, that's the that's the vision. Um, it's, it's a simple vision. Everyone can live with, the, with basic needs or without fear or worry, and dignity is, uh, everyone's dignity is respected, and that's the kind of global security system, alternative security system that we're really looking at.
1: Patrick, do you have anything to add when you think of alternative global security system?
5: Uh, Yeah, I mean, I think I'll start off by stating what I think is the unfortunate context that we have to call it an alternative security system, because what what both Kozer and Tony said is there is a very dominant uh, collective war system that relies on power and force. And Tony really outlined, you know, what the alternatives are, and it would be hard for me, you know, to... Add more to that because I would use the exact same language of the book because we contributed to writing it. But I think one point that I would add is that when we first wrote it, we really thought very hard. So Tony said, you know, I'm, I like complex thinking. I'll put 15 Tony types into a room and, and talk about security. I mean, that <laughs> you have good times there. But kind of one one of the things that, that we, t- we thought about and that I really feel strongly about is that, you know, the term peace is s- still often viewed more as the soft and fuzzy part. And that is owned by those that are naive. And I don't believe that, but this is still out there. And security is something hard and real and in a dangerous world. And that is owned by those in power. And I think it is really important to, um, to refuse this notion that security cannot be something that those of us who advocate for you know, nonviolence and nonviolent management of conflicts and cultures of peace get to use that term in, in very real terms. So that is kind of where I feel strongly about talking about security.
2: I'd like to ask each of the three of you, what do you see as our best hope of getting from here to there? i think any of us who read this book as as we all have can see the the greatness of this vision but how do we get there and i know that's an impossible question so let's just take two minutes each <laughs> why don't we start with tony
4: i was going to say if anyone else wants to jump in first they're welcome to it um, <laughs> that's a good question um if if i were to answer it um you know, I guess my mind always goes back to to Margaret Mead a little bit, right? Um, I think where we find great hope um, is in the idea that she she expressed in terms of understanding war as a human invention, right? Uh, and uh, kind of the the good news of that, uh, from from Margaret Mead's perspective, is she identified that um, you know, human inventions have faded away when certain conditions have been met over time. So the first condition is that the effects of the old system uh the old invention are recognized and i think uh we're we're pretty good at um uh at expressing the the problems of of um, you know the global insecurity as pursued through military means uh and then the second criteria is that um a new invention needs to be envisioned and designed to replace the old and you know we we have this book um which is as I mentioned before, is is rooted in years and years of marvelous research. We aren't the first people to to take an effort at envisioning an alternative system, um, but um, you know we 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 are certainly making a significant contribution to it. Um, we're disseminating the information. We're helping people to begin to to see that it's tangible. Um, you know what our study guide is all about. In a way, is to complement. You know the, the kind of dense text of our 200 plus page book, uh, with stories of people who are actually working on these um, alternative components uh, that that promote a real sense of authentic human security. Uh, but I guess the to me, you know, the most um, important part of um, of Margaret Mead's work um, is the third condition that that she often alluded to. You know, so for an old invention to really fade away, we actually need to believe that social invention itself is possible. And I think that's one of the biggest challenges that we face. We have to sort of get past the, the pessimism that the war system um, is inescapable. Um, and that's no, no simple task. Um, so, you know, it's really important for us to, to be aware of the difficulty of managing and constructing their preferred realities. Um, when our when our visions of the future are guided by this um, this pessimism and these present probabilities um, but um, you know the future is not predestined you know we 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 can break through with that we have peace education at our disposal we have the information that peace research is is providing the the challenges these assumptions, and we can certainly move forward from these really kind of pessimistic probabilistic futures to something that 's much more preferred so yeah. Yeah. If I would sum it all up, you know, um, if we think that war is inevitable, it basically makes it so, so right. Um, and, uh, learning to think the ending war as possible opens this door to, to begin constructing the work on an actual peace system. That's what it's all
2: about for me. Great. Yeah. And, you know, I think that also points to one of the values of this book is that if somebody were to try to claim that there is no possible peace system, then we can pull up this book and say, well, this book actually describes what the system would be from A to Z. I'd like to ask Kozue the same question.
0: I think I see some hope, not necessarily the greatest hope, but some hopes in in two things. One is deepening awareness about uh, gender equality, particularly among young people. Mm -hmm. And um, Growing various international solidarity networks that I have been uh, I have involved. The uh, the first one, what well, having having been uh, in kind of field of uh, feminist peace studies and research and, and activism, our conviction is that um, is that a war or conflict started at home or in your probably most intimate relationship and um, we also worked on uh, abolishing or well, abolishing hopefully uh sexual violence or gender based violence and that is about that is about values and at your our action and the very um, connection between um between what uh, how you how you um interact with the uh interact with the the most uh, i mean with the with the closest uh people around you and gender we believe is the very very basis uh of uh of that of that relation so when i uh either when i teach or when i work with uh, younger, uh, younger people in uh, raising more awareness about gender equality. Um, I actually see the very seed for uh, achieving, achieving uh, the world or society preferred society in which everyone's dignity is, uh, is respected. Um, and that would ultimately I believe would lead to um, a society of preferred world in which conflict is not a norm to solve the problems or differences or disputes. and that's where that, that's where I think our hope lies, and that's something that I hope uh, that I think. Is more tangible for everyone to be, you know, to be a part of the, the peace work that you that you are you know, that you're aspiring. Um, another is also developing the, the second one about international global or transnational solidarity, is that developing from your uh, um, your interpersonal relations with the with the, you know, with, with somebody you are, you actually work with, or you actually live with, uh, and, um, and and developing that, that relation to much wider uh, transnational uh, solidarity and something that, um, that I think is also something that you can actually feel uh, to be involved in the, in the work um, of oh, achieving, um, alternative or a preferred, uh, global security that you, you just laid out. Well, so those are the things that I can see.
2: Well, thank you. That's, um, that's actually in a way, almost a surprising perspective to, to place the individual relationships at the center of, of the global sickness. And I think it makes a lot of sense. That's actually something I I don't hear very much of when talking about anti-war approaches. And I'm really glad to hear that pointed out. Thank you. Thank Um, you. And Patrick?
5: Um, Well, you know what gives me hope is that what we're talking about, I don't think that's anything naive. I think it's something very real. Um, on, on my business card, I actually have a sentence on the back which says, we are at a stage in human history where we know better and more alternatives to war and violence. So collectively as humans, we've figured it out. So we know what causes war, we know what the conditions for peace are. Um, that does not mean that we're naive about what we're facing in terms of a strong war system, right, but just you know, being able to identify the many variables and still learning on there. I think that combination of that knowledge and then looking at uh, movements, especially in the contemporary context, there are so many movement that are that, you know, the intersectionality of those issues and they're recognizing it. I think we're still not quite there where there's the best action based on the recognition that issues like, you know, all the, the racism, gender inequality, and, and uh, climate change are all connected to what we're looking at in terms of ending war. There's a lot of recognition. Yes, we know it's connected, but we're not quite there at, at the action step yet. Um, one of the areas that I really like to talk about a lot is kind of, in terms of hope, is showing what has already happened. So uh, if we look at areas like social change, global collaboration, or what we call constructive conflict transformation, we can look to so many examples over the last uh, 100 plus years that um, actually one of the other authors of the book, Ken Shifford, uh, outlined in what he called that global peace system. And I kind of took, tried to take that a little further in my work Um, and really I talk a lot about you know we've got we've come a long way in human rights issues that doesn't mean we're where we need to be or in women's rights we're still far from where we need to be but we have to recognize there's been advances and we can build on those Uh, peace education Tony is an expert in that and and you know we have K through 12 peace education programs I have a degree in conflict resolution so I'm you know, I can say I, I have a doctorate in conflict resolution. I'm not saying that to, to show off, but it is so cool that there's a community, there are hundreds of graduate and undergraduate programs in peace and conflict studies. I think that's just amazing and that there is a growing community. So that gives me hope. This is all real. This is not something we just wish would be happening. These are real trends that take us in the right way. So I think one, one point I'll add is, that shouldn't be a call for us to be complacent. Like, oh, well, so we've, we're moving the right way, so all is good. I think it's a very scary time, but we, if we see this is what we already have, let's build on that and make that system stronger to counter that dominant war system.
1: In talking about you know, your question, Mark, of how do we actually get there, um, and that's, I think that's one of the strong points of World Beyond War's book is that we really lay out the strategies needed to get us there. And I think we do it in a clear format and we divide it into three main strategies, which are demilitarizing security, managing conflict nonviolently, and cultivating a culture of peace. And so I'd love to touch on those strategies throughout this conversation today so thinking about the first one, demilitarizing security, um, Kozue, when I read your bio, I saw that that was one of your specialty areas, and in particular, demilitarization from a gender perspective. So I wonder if you could just tell our listeners a little bit about your work and when, what that means to say demilitarization from a gender perspective. Yeah.
0: Um, maybe i'll start with my work with uh since uh since you gave me the opportunity for me to explain a little bit. I have been working with the uh, civil uh civil women's groups feminist feminist peace groups uh for uh, demilitarization of, of security and the first one uh the first um, uh feminist groups for I mean, women who introduced me this idea. Uh, are from uh, from okinawa japan um i think if you are in the, in the peace uh, in the peace movement you probably know where Okinawa is and what their experiences are but maybe just very briefly um Okinawa is a part of uh, of japan the southernmost part of japan who was incorporated or annexed or colonized into modern nation of japan in the late 19th century so they are ethnic uh ethnic minority uh indigenous uh debatable but uh, and they have um, uh, U.S. Uh, the this when Japan was divided in the Asia Pacific War, uh, World War II, uh, the the Asia Pacific Theater of the World War II. Um, Okinawa was taken by the US, the United States and uh, Allied forces, and uh, in 1945, and since then, and they uh, the U.S. military has been stationed in Okinawa. Um, Yes since then <laughs> and they are still there and compared to other other parts of uh, other parts of japan uh Okinawa has hosted that uh, dispor- disproportionately large percentage uh in terms of the uh, the, the land area over seventy percent of the uh, uh the u s military facilities um uh, Exclusively used by the U.S. military in Japan is located in Okinawa, and Okinawa only consists, like, uh, about one percent land area wide of the entire uh, land area of Japan. Uh, so they uh, and and in the the bases there uh, and other facilities there have catered to various uh, needs of the U.S. military to wage wars that you know, they they have had in the. Asia Pacific region and and beyond since then. Um, one of the uh, the major issues ongoing and was uh, is uh, sexual violence by by U.S. soldiers and and Okinawa. The people of Okinawa also has experienced sexual violence and systematic uh, sexual violence in the form of so-called confrontation station by the. Japanese imperial military during the uh, the Asia Pacific War, so Pacific War. So they know that uh, that the sexual violence, um, sexual violence is uh, sexual violence always come with the military, not only the war, but the military and the presence of the military. So they started to question and mid 1990s that's when I met them in actually in New York uh, when they visited uh, women's you know women's activist military visited New York uh, and other cities in the United States um, to directly directly communicate with U.S. citizens about their own experiences vis-a-vis the presence of the U.S. military and it was the other time that internet was not not very much available so they wanted to do they wanted to to meet with the, with Americans to talk about what they what they have experienced what they have so they have seen and what they have thought um, and their they uh, their analysis uh, was that there's a problem with the military itself and also they they were very clear that uh that the military doesn't provide security uh, to our lives. In fact, the military is the very, very source, the military presence is the very, very source of insecurity of our lives all the way through and and look at what the women have to go through. Uh, That's a continuation of sexual violence by by the military, active military. Um, And they went on to analyze that the problem of the military as an institution—it's—it um, was already known, I think, that the, the in the uh, in the culture of the military, and particularly in, in the training of the military, you see t- various kinds of discrimination. Because uh, I think Tony mentioned earlier about you know killing and and destruction. That's what the that's what military actually does when we use the term security and peace and protection and so forth as the uh, Mission of, uh, of the military, but what what they actually have to do is to kill the enemy and It's not very easy to kill other human beings. So what they do in the military is to uh, is to train soldiers uh, or Teach them that it's okay to kill the enemy because they are not the same human beings as you are. And uh, and and in that process, various forms of discrimination, racism, is probably more more uh, more visible one um, in in their training. And we still see a lot of uh, you know cult, uh, the, the racism and discrimination in the in the in the in uh, in activities of the military what these women from okinawa uh, started to point out was that um uh, gender uh, or sexism uh, or gender d- discrimination actually underlies uh, or have underlie the military all the way through and sexual violence uh, which is uh which is uh um what well, the violence against women that is uh as a manifestation of the, the control of the power over the weaker and in this case male uh manifestation of a control by uh, of, by male of uh, of women or the, the feminine ones uh, is actually um resulted in sexual violence in uh, by the, by the military personnel and particularly in the so-called host communities, that is the uh, the uh, the community that uh, where the military uh, uh, where the military uh, The host communities, in particularly in the uh, particularly outside the United States in the Asia Pacific, Okinawa is one of them, and South Korea is another. The Philippines are are similar uh, the case. Um, sexual violence, including uh, prostitution, by the by the US, uh, by the U.S. military, um, is an inevitable result of uh, the culture of the of the military. So they um, they started to be connected with the women's and feminist groups in other host communities in the in the Asia Pacific and beyond uh, to question the militarized the security system and idea uh, the, the global at uh, the global scale. And so with these uh, with, this, with this uh having worked with uh, with these women Okinawa women act against the military violence and uh the transnational solidarity network of uh, feminist uh, peace uh activists in the host communities of the US military that is international women's network against the militarism and of course um and of course um Betty Friedan, the feminist peace educator and uh, and, and activist, um, with whom Tani and I uh, studied, um, we um, we started. We have been uh, we have been advocating the perspective, uh, the importance of the perspective of uh, um, from uh, from from gender. Um, And like I tried to explain earlier, um, having a gender perspective means, means um, examining the everyday uh, power relations through the lens of the roles that we are expected to play as a woman or as as a man in a given society and we advocating to apply this perspective in understanding what the military uh, in understanding or analyzing the values for the culture of the of the military and further we have been calling for a, a transformation or a transformation of that assumption that the military provides uh security the military is almost the, uh, the the only source to provide security of our lives because in reality the people suffering uh, more directly in the hostile communities of the of, uh, of the military, but also. Uh, at the global scale as well, when we look at the uh, the uh, the resources that are that are spent on uh, on preparing on the preparation of the uh, of war, uh, like John explained earlier, and spending more uh, resources on, uh, on 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 the military, um, so the so that affects everyone, but more directly. The people of the host of communities that are often um, ethnic minorities of the uh, uh, of uh, of a, of one nation or a more marginalized uh, marginalized community, and when their lives are made insecure by the very presence of the uh, of the military that has at the very very core uh, sexist uh, sexism or the gender discrimination or other forms of discrimination at the as as their their, uh, values, fundamental values. There's something wrong with that, the entire security system. And that's what we are looking at when we talk, uh, when we talk about demilitarization from a gender perspective.
1: Thank you, Kozue. Mark?
0: well i would
2: like to ask patrick what exactly a peace scientist is
5: well i mentioned uh, my background is that degree in conflict analysis and resolution and it's part of the bigger field of peace and conflict studies and i try to really break down peace science and into very simple terms is where we look at the uh causes of war and the conditions for peace so that's what we study so it is Uh, an interdisciplinary field so we really draw from sociology, anthropology, social psychology, um, gender studies, uh, you name it. Uh, Many political science international relations uh, there are you know scholars in those areas who you know conduct in my opinion peace research but would never take on that label. I'm kind of out there as a cheerleader to say hey (laughs) Peace science is real, and we're here, and, you know, trying to mainstream that whole idea a little bit. Uh, That's that's my understanding of peace science. Cool. So with uh, peace science, when I talk about the the causes of war and conditions for peace, I remember um, that first big planning retreat that we had for World Beyond War. and We were sitting there, and uh, Ken Schifford, who is one of the other primary authors of this book said something along those lines, I'm paraphrasing, but he said that, you know, we might sound like arrogant that was an explicit word, but we figured it out. You know, we know what to do. We know what the causes of war are, and we know what we need to do for peace. And my point there is that I really try to push is that peace science supports a lot of that. So in my, my studies, I've studied peace movements and peace movement activists. And I think, in the u s context, and I think over history, the peace movement has had it right. they 've had the absolute strong social analysis, and they 've known for a long time what was going on, also the whole systemic nature and I think peace science now is here to support a lot of that and you know one, one of my roles with the, the book was you know to add lots of footnotes. Um, Because in in many circles, that is really important to show that the points you bring up have support, not only in academic circles, but when you uh, work with legislators, they will read uh, one page memos, but they want to know that what you present to them has some serious backing. And if you know, build the relationship with them and then present them with the information like the one we're working on, and we have the science and the evidence to support that, it just makes it stronger. And, uh, and along those lines, I've started the uh, publication of the Peace Science Digest um, at my organization. And what we're trying to do there is to make you know the peace research that we consider important along the lines of our mission to you know, end all wars to make that accessible, understandable and useful because uh, research is usually not very accessible. It's tucked away behind the paywalls of journals and read by very few people, mostly the reviewers and then you get your other four or five people. So it's also it's written in academic jargon so it's not very understandable because if you want to publish in academic journals, you have to speak that language. So that I think doesn't make it very useful. And I am one of those seven people who tends to read academic peace research articles. And I found things like, oh, so they just provided scientific evidence that nations are 100 times more likely to intervene with the military when there is oil and the other nation or that the public is uh more likely to be against war when alternatives are presented i mean just think about that it seems like common sense but sometimes we need the you know we need the science and the proof to support the common sense and that you know that strengthens us in saying well we need to point to the alternatives so yes, I'm already against the next war, and here's why. And here are the alternatives. And I think that's where the science uh, just can be supportive. And we have in the Peace Science Digest hundreds of talking points. You know, those little scientific talking points about peace journalism. That people who are exposed to peace journalism, they have, uh, you know, they have a lower likelihood of viewing that conflict in the us versus them terms. Now imagine that in our current context, how important that is. So imagine if we can, you know, advance peace journalism to to get there. They have increased levels of hope and empathy though, people who are exposed to that and decreased levels of anger and fear. So this excites me about peace science being, you know, real and out there. And uh, like I, I said, I'm kind of trying to be a cheerleader to not only talk about it, but also about certain, you know, research that really advances the work that we're doing.
1: Question for everyone. What inspired you to become peace educators in the first place? And maybe we'll go back to Tony for this one.
4: That's a good question. Um, (laughs) without giving you my whole life story, part of it was, um, uh, an experience with violence. Um, and that was one side of it, and the other uh, side of it was um, an experience of education and you know learning its uh, true transformative potential, uh, and those two things have sort of uh, long uh, been intertwined in my life and my career path, my vocational path. Um, so, I mean, uh, the story goes back to uh, my first uh, teaching experience as an undergraduate, where I happened to be. Uh, teaching in a school in uh, uh, in Detroit uh, in an after-school program teaching issues of social justice through the lens of photography. And a, a very, obviously, very green teacher, my very first teaching experience, not even knowing that teaching was going to be something that would guide my life uh, from that point forward. But uh, through this uh, amazing encounter with these really bright Uh, students who who were looking to make meaning of their world Um, in the middle of uh, teaching this course one of our students was in the wrong place at the wrong time and was uh, shot and killed in the crossfire of gang violence and uh, the students turned to us um, to try to make meaning of that to try to understand what to do with it and of course this is not An experience that I'd had before Uh, I had to to make sense of it, Uh, you know, as as we all would probably do in that particular position. Our first response is obviously deep mourning, but also a great amount of anger and frustration. Um, And I wasn't really equipped with the knowledge to understand uh, the broader kind of culture and system of violence that I was in. Um, And um, the thing that really led me to the path of, so that sort of opened to me this inquiry into the whole system and nature of violence, Uh, but really what led me onto the path of of doing the educational work uh, was having a visit with this um, young woman who who passed away, Um, her her grandparents whom she was living with and uh, after her uh, memorial service, and they shared with us that uh, my co-teacher and I, that for the first time, in this young woman's life because of the experience she had in this, in this uh, very short course with us, that she was motivated to, to go to college for the first time. It was something she could imagine herself doing, which she could never imagine having done before. Uh, and that to me showed this just tremendously powerful, transformative uh, potential that education could have for people when it was done right. Um, and so you know it's just uh, thankfully, I had some strong mentors who who helped guide me through those those questions, gave me some really powerful experiences to learn from, to dive deeper into all this, uh, and uh, then the long journey has ensued, and here I am
1: yeah thanks for sharing tony i didn't know that story that history it's interesting that it started with a personal kind of connection for you because in organizing work i'm the organizing director of world beyond war and i'm engaging with volunteers on a daily basis and i think one of the challenges is getting people motivated to do this work when they haven't had that personal experience and often um, you know especially with volunteers in the u.s you know war can seem very far away and and like this foreign or a concept
4: yeah absolutely it's one of the things that my students grab with all the time they they have this fundamental question that we need to have some terrible of experience of violence to become motivated to become agents of change and um i don't think that that's the case at all and certainly my work in in peace education is revolves around a lot of work that tries to to help students kind of develop this kind of inner moral resources that are necessary for, you know, engaging in the, the outer political struggles that, that are so important to transforming the world that we're a part of. And that could be done um, with good, meaningful education. Um, and uh, that's, you know, that's what I've been trying to do for a
5: long time.
1: Mm. And Patrick, what inspired you to become a peace educator?
5: I think the time uh, that probably it was a probably a time period that really inspired me was when I was getting my master's degree in geography and I I lived in Mexico and uh, with my uh, then girlfriend now wife and she was very involved in a nonviolent grassroots organization uh, working for change there and I was always kind of on that peace and justice side, but there, I really got sucked into the reality of being a a very active agent for change and, uh, sitting down and reading and studying and learning. And essentially at that point it became clear that there is actually no other way for me to do, you know, what I'm doing now. The one, um, point i realized at that stage is that i felt comfortable and also eager to become even more engaged in research and writing which is why i went on to pursue my studies in conflict resolution but since then you know i've always been inspired to to have that have multiple identities as a peace professional peace scientist and you know, peace activists also to make sure that those are not mutually exclusive. So when I talk about peace research, I don't, this is not value-free. This is very clear with the objective of using research and research insights to create a more uh, just and peaceful world.
2: I don't think we've heard uh, Kozue's answer to that question yet.
0: I've always wanted to study peace education or learning for peace since um, I think undergraduate. Or even earlier, and I did, and I, I did study um, education or learning uh, for peace um, in, uh, in in undergraduate, and uh, more specialized in um, at graduate school, uh, the masters and doctoral, and so all my uh, all my uh, degrees are in education. I wanted to know earlier I wanted to know uh, why people or soldiers do what they do um you know uh, um, like kill others and 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 participating in in atrocities and so forth I just I wanted to I wanted to know how that happens like regular people in uh, in a peaceful society when they they don't seem that bad (laughs) what uh, how, how could that happen was my original question. I still uh, remain maintained that question, and then, so I wanted to know, um, and I wanted to study a piece from uh, from more personal uh, perspective or personal experience, and I was looking at like these studies. Uh, programs in, in other schools and and those are mainly like you know power politics the uh, you know, political science uh, political science scientific <laughs> research but I thought I wanted to learn about uh, people um, so that's why I wanted to study peace education and and I did um Part of peace educator, I think I wasn't really thinking about when I started to study uh, peace education. Um, but I also wanted to, if I was not really interested in school education. I wanted to expand um, um, my scope of, uh, my understanding of the scope of education wider. And I did. I did so in my research that's why I, I did i conducted actual research on uh feminist uh peace uh movement and i see i see um, i see uh, like grassroots um activism as a forum of informal informal uh learning or education like in a call private type of uh uh, approach. I I do teach um, at an institution, so in that sense, I'm I'm probably a peace educator, uh, in a narrower sense. But I want to be, if possible, I want to be seen if I am in any way a peace educator. Um, I want to be seen um, as an activist. Um, and that's the, the my education education part like learning from each other. I still learn from uh, my uh, um, yeah. I think I think like mutual learning in uh, in 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 grassroots uh, activities or even like intern at the international level um, people's movement as a platform of uh, learning for peace and creating, creating opportunities for, uh, for action. And I think I wanted to, what, if anything, inspired me to be a peace educator in a broader sense is that my, like as a younger me, um, aspiration for uh, knowing about the possibility of my, my own involvement in changing and transformation. I hope that answers the question.
1: Yeah, thanks for sharing your story. And it's interesting that you talk about you know the, the dual uh, purpose or the importance of having both education and activism. And we think the same way at World Beyond War. And we have our peace education department and our book and our online courses. But we also have our grassroots activist campaigns putting that knowledge into action to make change in this world. Thanks um so i think that about ra- wraps it up mark um do you have any last thoughts
2: I'd, I'd love to go on for another hour but i do think we better um cut it off at this point <laughs> yeah
5: can, can i add 20 seconds because that was just so so amazing to hear both you know uh, Kosu and tony and, and you know what inspired them and, and i think that is why we as peace educators and those who want to change the world are in a much better place than those who are keeping us on the destructive path we have those different backgrounds those different ways of contributing to our causes but we recognize that we are all part of that same you know movement that is pulling in that one direction i just love that that you know that i see people who have come seemingly completely different interests, but it is just that bigger picture.
2: Well, I think those are great words to go out on. You know, I, I do not really come from an academic background, so this has definitely been um, very informative to me. I actually was not aware of many of the things that all three of you talked about.
5: So, thank you. Thank
0: you.
4: Thank you, Mark. Thank you, Greta.
5: Great conversation.
0: Yeah, well, thank you very much. For the opportunity na po na